This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch new episodes every Thursday or subscribe to ensure you get them all. Now, as the nation honours members of the armed forces who died in the line of duty on Remembrance Day on the 11th of November, we're about to discover the stories of six of London's finest First World War memorials, each of which is cared for by English heritage. You can see them all for yourself by following our trail, starting from the Cenotaph on Whitehall and ending at the Royal Artillery Memorial at Hyde Park Corner. Together, all six memorials reflect the impact of the Great War, while their fascinating stories reveal different approaches to commemorating the dead. Joining me to guide us through their stories and their symbolism are our two guests for today. Hello, I'm Jeremy Ashby and I'm the Head Properties Curator at English Heritage. Hello, I'm Roger Bowdler. I used to work at English Heritage for many, many years. Now I work at a firm called Montague Evans as a planning consultant, but I'm very interested in matters of commemoration and have been involved in quite a few charities about such things. I'd like to start with the memorial that represents everyone lost to the Great War. This was covered in our own podcast episode back in episode 15, in fact. And this is the Cenotaph. Jeremy, could you tell us where the Cenotaph is in London? Certainly. It's very simple. The Cenotaph is right in the middle of a very broad street called Whitehall. That street, for anyone who's got some idea of the geography of London, is the street that links Trafalgar Square at its northern end with Parliament Square, the Palace of Westminster and Westminster Abbey at its southern end. And it's surrounded by the great buildings of where the civil service is basically run for. All the great departments of state are there and the cenotaph is right in the heart of all of that. Nearest tube stop for people who want to go and visit it? Nearest tube stop would be Westminster at its southern end or Charing Cross at its northern end. And it's probably something like five minutes walk from either of them. Yes, and I think maybe even Piccadilly Circus, you could uh, do a bit of a walk down from there as well. Okay, so what does the cenotaph mean as a word, Roger? The cenotaph comes from two Greek words, and literally it means empty tomb. And that takes you straight to the heart of what it's all about. It's a marker for the hundreds of thousands of dead, a million dead from Britain and the Empire who um, lost their lives in the First World War. Can you tell us who commissioned it then? It's commissioned in 1919 by the government as part of the peace parade celebrating the Treaty of Versailles and it marked a stopping point in this triumphant procession of victory at which point the procession would pause and pay their respects to their dead comrades. So originally it was just part of a procession but it very quickly gains enormous magnetic appeal to the hundreds of thousands of people in Britain who had lost people in the war. The creator was an architect named Edwin Lutyens, is that correct? It absolutely is. And Lutyens is up there with Sir Christopher Wren and Vanbrugh, John Soane, as one of the greatest architects that Britain has ever seen. He begins as an arts and crafts architect But like lots of people in Edwardian times, he became increasingly interested in classical architecture. And what we've got is this extraordinary tribute to the architecture of ancient Athens turned into a modern memorial. How does this appear for someone who's perhaps an international listener who hasn't been to London? How would you describe this structure? Well, first of all, I hope they do come to visit it. They'd be most welcome. The structure is like a tall pedestal. It's like an upright rectangular shaft that gets slightly narrower at the top. It's quite an austere structure. There's no sculpture on it. It has a couple of carved wreaths of laurel leaves, which are ancient tributes to fallen warriors. But at the top, you have another of these wreaths lying on top of what's essentially the empty tomb or sarcophagus. That's another word from ancient Greece, which literally means flesh eater. So it was a receptacle in which you'd place a dead body. So imagine a pedestal supporting this coffin-like box at the top, and that's what you've got. 
It's also proudly displays the flags of Britain's armed forces. So we have the three flags of the Royal Air Force, the Army, the Navy, and the Merchant Navy. Are these carved in or are they sort of coming out in a sort of 3D relief effect? They're real flags and they are placed on on the side of the monument, just as people place poppies, poppy wreaths, most famously on Remembrance Sunday, when the nation and the Commonwealth pay their tributes, led by the monarch. So those flags, those real flags, are a real pop of colour to what is, as you say, an austere grey kind of monument. That's absolutely right. And you can see those as the living embodiment of the armed forces placed against this enduring stone monument, which is really there for eternity to make people remember the shortness of those lives cut off. We have some words inscribed into the structure as well, don't we, to help people remember. What do they say? Yeah, there are words and there are Roman letters that symbolise the uh, years of the two world wars. At the bottom, on on either end, are the words, the glorious dead, which are said to have been composed by Lloyd George. And that's what they are, the glorious dead. So the monument is playing homage to the military prowess of these million lost people. But the word dead is unmistakable. This is about lives that have been prematurely cut off. And the, the Roman numerals at the top refer to the the years in which the First and Second World Wars were waged. The lettering is also quite Romanesque, I think, isn't it? It's sort of almost like a Times New Roman type font or a Trajan type font, if if there are any graphic designers listening who might know those. And it's also in capitals, the writing. Yeah, very much a, a Roman inscription and exquisitely done. And Lloyd George, of course, the Prime Minister who um, signed the Treaty of Versailles. You said that this began as the Peace Day Parade Memorial. Is that right? For 1919? That's right. It was the London Peace Celebrations, July the 19th, 1919. So imagine a parade of of triumphant soldiers, sailors, airmen, civilians, just relieved it was all over. Though, as we know, fighting did continue in various places into 1920 and beyond. So yeah, it marked a point on a parade of celebration. This temporary structure, what was it made out of initially? Well, that was mocked up in a hurry. And it was a sort of wooden timber structure covered in plaster impregnated cloth that was then painted to look like stone. So rather theatrical in its nature. Was this structure always going to be permanent or did it just start off as this temporary structure and then there was this desire to have something permanent in Whitehall there? Just as you say, it began as a temporary item. It was to do with a parade, so there for the parade, then to be taken down. And yet the public really responded to it. They had a locus, they had a place in which they could lay down tributes to remember the fallen of their families. That's what had been missing. Local war memorials were starting to be erected, but the nation to have a place at which the enormity of sacrifice could be marked, that's what hadn't been considered before. And Lutchens' temporary structure delivers just that. Why do you think it's so admired today? I suppose it has now become this focal point for the country, as you say, and for, for any other countries that were involved in the war. What's your take on why it's such an important structure? Scholars and critics, people like Gavin Stamp, have assigned enormous importance to this structure. One of the key reasons they ascribe for its enduring success as a memorial is its emptiness. It doesn't give you a sculpted agenda of triumphalism. You can read it in various ways. It's essentially a vessel, a receptacle into which the grieving person can place their own feelings. So it's austerity touched with this ancient Greek inflection is what gives it its power. It's not a place where you're told what to think. It's a place where you can come and do your thinking, placed against the context of national remembrance and the nation's gratitude to the sacrifices made. Is it easy to visit, Jeremy? You have to cross a road, don't you? And it's quite a busy road. I I actually would strongly advise you not to cross the road because actually Whitehall can be actually quite dangerous. And my feeling about 
the cenotaph is that it is actually best admired you know to take your time over it to let it speak to you because exactly as roger said it's it's a very very plain structure and actually appreciating it you know does take some time and some you really need to actually you know gather your thoughts for it so i think that's the best thing to do but of course as roger has always said there's a long tradition of people laying poppy wreaths on the steps at the foot of it which obviously has a particular focus around Remembrance Sunday in November. But actually, it's something that happens all the way through the year. There are always people that are actually laying their tributes there and coming to visit it. And people do come to visit it for a number of reasons, but commemoration is still something that it does. Of course, it's been enormously influential and successful that what started off as the commemoration of the dead of the First World War that never found their own resting place it now has massively broadened and you know as roger has said it's not just the the dead now of the armed forces of the united kingdom it now actually speaks very much of armed forces of the commonwealth and of course you know has has, has come to be the focus of commemoration after many other wars so it really is probably one of the most significant monuments that english heritage has the privilege of looking after it's almost like the first uh, major commemoration, isn't it, of the First World War? And then obviously with the inscription after the Second World War, the, it was also representing that as well. But initially, obviously, this first great national memorial to the First World War. And of course, this year, if you're listening in 2022, will be the first time that the new king, King Charles III, will be leading the nation's commemorations after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. So that, that's another first to consider as well. Well, let's move on to our next memorial to the Great War. Jeremy, can you introduce it for us and where we're going? Well, we don't have to go very far for this one because it's actually on Whitehall too. But we've got to head north for just a few minutes walk. So we go past the entrance to Downing Street, which is on the western side. And if we're on that side, we'll have to cross over the road, taking great care for, to avoid the traffic. And just a little bit further to the north, we come upon another memorial to the Great War, which is a statue of Field Marshal Earl Haig. Roger, tell us who Earl Haig was and when was his statue created? Well, Douglas Haig, born 1861, he's born into the famous family of whiskey distillers. Don't be vague, ask for Haig. You'll remember from the advert. He joins the army after having studied at Oxford. So he's quite a learned officer. He's, in, he's a cavalry officer. He then rises up through the army staff corps. And he's one of the leading generals sent out in 1914 to command the armies on the Western Front. And he becomes the overall commander in chief of the British army in the middle of 1915, replacing Sir John French. And he continues to lead the British army and Canadian Anzac other forces until the end of the war. So he bears this incredible burden of command on the Western Front, which must be one of the ghastliest responsibilities any soldier has ever had to carry. How do we see Earl Haig appearing as this statue? Is he quite high up? Is he? How does he appear? Again, I really recommend people coming to Whitehall to have a look at this because this, this is an unusual statue. Now, we had equestrian statues of Roman emperors on powerful horses going back to classical times. And there's the very famous statue of the 1630s by Le Sueur of Charles I at Charing Cross, which again is just a couple of hundred yards further north than this one. So this is part of a tradition of depicting commanders and rulers on horseback. The powerful horse is the equivalent of the state or the army that this single individual is controlling. This is a really muscular, taut horse. He's quite ferocious and it's quite a stylized horse by the sculptor Alfred Hardiman. Haig is there in his uniform. He's not wearing a cap, oddly. Maybe we can talk about that later. Mm. But he's in bronze on a Portland stone plinth and it's it's an impressive but curious affair so when was this statue created after the great war haig dies he has a heart attack in 1928 he's 66 years old and the monument goes up in 1937 
And it takes a while because there's a certain amount of controversy about what the monument should be like. Plus, you can't just knock up a bronze statue of this scale overnight. It's a very, very complex, demanding process. But it certainly took a while longer than it might have because there was quite a row about how he should be depicted. So what was this controversy over Field Marshal Earl Haig? Well, it was actually largely a stylistic argument about how he should be represented. If you go to Edinburgh Castle, there's an equestrian statue of Earl Haig, uh, which is quite tame, if I could say that. It's quite sort of straightforward and realistic and traditional and actually, you know, not all that remarkable in sculptural terms. What Hardiman achieved was a modern equestrian statue full of muscular taut power in the horse and an interesting depiction of of Earl Haig. And Haig's widow really didn't like what was being proposed. She said, that's not what his horse looked like. She wanted a realistic horse. And so you got this predictable argument between traditionalists who wanted a more realistic horse versus the artistic lobby who were after something in which the nature of the representation of the horse contributed to the portrayal of the man. And that's what you get, this sort of coiled, muscular, Greek-inspired horse with Haig on top. Haig looking slightly unusual because he's not wearing his cap. Yes, Um, tell us about that. Most people, if they've seen maybe the film War Horse, for example, or they've seen black and white images of the First World War, they will have seen the cavalrymen with these distinct hats, with these visors over the front, these caps. So why wasn't he wearing that in this this statue? For a field marshal to go out without wearing his cap when he's wearing a uniform would be unthinkable. So it's an attempt to place greater emphasis on the portrait of the man by not distracting with a cap. If you look at the statue of Marshal Foch, the French commander near Victoria Station, he's firmly wearing his his French cap, or kipi, as they call him. So why isn't he wearing his hat? Hardiman, I think it's another challenge to the traditions of the equestrian commander statue. And again, it was a reason for controversy. The other thing that strikes me is that uh, I think Haig... He was unpopular for his decisions on the battlefield as well. Does this sort of feed into the controversy around the erection of this statue? I would say later on it certainly colours people's views about this statue. Initially, the statue was erected in tribute to his hugely important role as the commander on the Western Front, but also his post-war conduct. He was very concerned about the welfare of wounded and mutilated survivors of the war. So a number of Hague memorial homes were set up in which limbless people could be cared for properly. He was instrumental in setting up the British Legion, which he headed initially. So the feeling was he was a very worthy leader in peacetime of the army community, which had suffered so badly. But in the 1960s, in particular, he becomes a bogeyman and he still has a somewhat checkered reputation that we can talk about if you like. How do you describe how historians view him these days? It's still a mixed picture, but the people who really criticised the command structures of the First World War, I think are, are now less to the fore in terms of the historiographical discourse. People recognise the enormity of the challenges he faced as the overall commander. They recognise that the British and Commonwealth Army did end up being a phenomenally successful weapon of warfare, defeating the powerful German army in 1918, helping take the pressure off the French, helping evolve a modern form of combined arms warfare that brought in tanks, aircraft, mobile responses to the nature of frontline fighting, plus the huge logistical challenges of running such a vast army. It was a phenomenal achievement, but there is no disguising the huge loss of life that was also incurred. An interesting uh, statue, certainly that one, and very near to the cenotaph, as Jeremy described. Let's move on to our third memorial to the Great War. 
Jeremy, can you introduce how we get there if we are travelling on foot from the Earl Hague Memorial? Certainly. So everyone now come with me. We've been going up Whitehall, which is parallel to the River Thames. The River Thames, if we're heading north, the River Thames is just out of sight on our right. And we've now got to cut through somewhere to get to the River Thames. And just beyond uh, Earl Hague's statue, there is indeed a street that will do that. We need to follow signs for Embankment Underground Station, Embankment Tube Station. And once we are at Embankment Tube Station, we can actually see the river and we need to keep heading northeast, further along the river. And then we come to, just on the other side of the road from the river, we see some gardens called Victoria Embankment Gardens. And it's set in Victoria Embankment Gardens that we find our third memorial, which is the Belgian Gratitude Memorial. So how does this differ, this setting, from those of the Cenotaph and the Hague Memorial? I suppose it's the fact that this particular structure is actually surrounded by greenery. That's exactly right, that it's still, of course, in a city setting, but uh, for once it's actually, you know, surrounded by, by green lawns, although you can, you can get to it directly from the pavement. So it is actually a bit of a softer setting uh, than mm. we find for some of the others. But also quite grand because, you know, it's not affected by traffic. It's not in a road, it's in a garden and it's hugged by stone and this semicircular wall. It's, it's it, a very imposing statue. Actually, physically, it's it's not one of the larger ones. I think physically, I hope I've got this right, that actually some of the others are, are much, much bigger. So I, I always think of the Belgian Gratitude Memorial as actually being quite an intimate space. Yes, you can walk up the steps and get close to it. So it does invite close inspection in that way. Can you describe it, Roger, for people who are trying to imagine it in their mind's eye? So we're in embankment gardens. We've got plane trees set behind it. We've got this curving Portland stone screen designed by the well-known British architect Sir Reginald Blomfield. And on either side of the centrepiece are two high-relief sculptures in Portland stone that are now getting very eroded. Uh, On the left hand, you've got justice. And on the right hand, you've got honour. Honour is a figure of St. George, so that's like Britain coming to protect Belgium from this dreadful invasion. Justice on the left is an allegorical woman, and you used to be able to see that she was holding a scroll, and this scroll depicted the all-important Treaty of London. That was a diplomatic treaty of 1837 that was of critical importance in Britain coming into the First World War, because in it, Britain undertook to come to Belgium's protection should it ever be invaded. So Britain was pledging its support in the event of invasion. And that's what brought Britain into the First World War. So the scroll that she's holding is really important. Are there any inscriptions as well? Not many. You've just got these words justice and honour that explain what those groups mean. This is one of those monuments that's really important to that it needs interpretation. It's why you need to look at the English Heritage website, or better of all, buy the guidebook, because it does give you a bit of explanation. So given the title of the artwork, this was presumably a gift from Belgium after the Great War, this Belgian Gratitude Memorial. It was indeed. It was as early as 1916, so in the middle of the war, the Belgian community in exile is beginning to think, how can we show our gratitude to Britain? not only for coming to fight for Belgium's independence, but also for receiving a quarter of a million refugees who moved to Britain after the Germans invaded in August 1914. So there was a very strong sense of gratitude owed by the Belgians to Britain. This monument is is the result of it. Belgium has got a very flourishing tradition of raising monuments. Um, Very impressive sculptural tradition. Uh, So they probably knew how long it would take to get something off the stocks. But it also shows just an awareness of of the obligations of gratitude. Tell us who created it then. You mentioned the architect was Sir Reginald Blomfield. Who else was involved in this project? So it's very much a a joint act. Blomfield, who was one of the architects, along with Sir Edwin Lutyens and Sir Herbert Baker of the Imperial Wargraves Commission, Blomfield did the setting but it was um, Victor Rousseau, who was a, a distinguished Belgian arch, uh, sculptor, 
who had worked for decades by the time he he got this commission. Um, he was born in 1865, so he was, um, what's that making, 35? Yeah, around about 50 when this commission came to him. And he was used to modelling on a big scale, so he reproduced a clay full-size model that would then get replicated in plaster, and that plaster becomes the cast into which the um, final bronze version would have been made. You um, mentioned that, of course, time has eroded at the stone. Can you describe how well it's survived since being unveiled in 1920? Well, it's survived in two ways. The bronze is an extraordinary material that is so enduring, and that looks great, and that's looked after by English heritage. It gets repatinated when they put a kind of polish on it to protect the surface. But the Portland stone is definitely eroding. And the figures of justice and honour are actually quite disfigured. They're almost grotesque because the stone is eroded. And you're quite near the very busy Victorian embankment, which is a busy traffic route. So you get salty air, you get salt from the roads, you get dirt, you get droppings from the plane trees above. The whole thing actually contributes to the declining condition. This is probably a moment where I could jump in and talk a little bit about the conservation, both of this and of other war memorials, because they do pose some particularly interesting and important challenges. I mean, exactly as Roger has said, the environment of a very busy capital city actually isn't doing too many favours for some of these monuments, especially the ones that are made of Portland stone, which is you know, it's a, it's a very when it's clean, it's a very white stone, but it's also a porous stone. It takes in moisture, and it also takes in if the rainwater has actually got lots of soot or other particles in it, they will actually get into the stone and discolor it. So one of the very delicate balances that we at English Heritage have is that we really want to make these monuments to look after them properly, to arrest the agencies of of decay, and also to make sure that they are not just presentable, but actually very presentable, looking very good for when people want to come to these monuments, actually to have moments of commemoration. And as I say, it's a delicate balance because the very act of cleaning a monument, if not done extremely carefully, can actually accelerate some of the degradation of monuments, and particularly where you've got delicate carving in stone, or as we're going to encounter with some of the other war memorials, actually delicate carving in quite low relief, that's a really very difficult challenge. I think it's unthinkable that we would actually want to actually try to recarve the, the the sculpture themselves. So quite often, it's just a matter of what is the gentlest way that we can clean them, or is there some other way we can protect them, like putting on some kind of shelter coating onto the surface that will actually slow down some of the agencies of their erosion. It's a difficult um, prospect, isn't it, really? Uh, well, it's, it's a challenge that, of course, we embrace and we know that we have to. But I think if, if I'm, you know, one of the observations that I've made in the years that I've been sort of thinking about these is that often I think when we think of war memorials and we think of the cemeteries of the war dead, we do tend to think of these in a very rural setting surrounded by trees, you know, with, with green lawns and you know, it's all quite peaceful and it's actually very different to the setting in which these monuments are in, in central London. But yet we want to maintain them to the same kind of impeccable standards. We, we need them to be looking at their best. Jeremy, let's move on to our next memorial. Yeah, this, this is going to be a slightly tricky journey. So if you've got your mobile phone with you, I would strongly advise you to tap in. Actually, the address that we're looking for is St. Martin's Place. But if uh, you need a big landmark, you could look for Trafalgar Square, it's actually very near, or the Church of St. Martin's in the Fields. It's, it's actually, St. Martin's Place is just to the north of the Church of St. Martin's in the Fields. It's quite near the London Coliseum for any fans of the English National Opera or whatever is there. And a quite well-known pub called the Duke of Chandos is actually quite nearby. So essentially, you've got to backtrack a little bit. You've got to go inland back towards the Strand and Charing Cross Station and just to the north of the Strand is where we'll find our fourth memorial which is the statue of Edith Cavell. Roger, who was Edith Cavell? What's her story in the Great War? It's a really important story and this is one of the very, very few monuments anywhere in the world to an individual woman as a war memorial. So Edith Cavell was a Norwich, Norfolk-born nurse born in 1865 
When war broke out in 1914, she was in charge of a nurses' training college in Brussels. She decided to stay at her post, but she wasn't going to go back to England. She stayed at her post and she started to assist British and Allied soldiers who'd been caught behind the lines to try and get them into neutral Holland from where they could make their way back. And she was arrested by the Germans, tried under martial law and executed is not something that happens to many nurses, in 1915. And this became a co-celebre for the Allied war cause, who had already realised that the Germans were committing atrocities on their invasion of Belgium and into France. But the shooting of a middle-aged nurse really took the biscuit. What kind of execution was it? Do we know? Um... She was shot by firing squad. Firing squad, right. October 1915. I see. Terrible circumstance, obviously. And I suppose, would it have been more shocking that a woman who's trying to help, you know, isn't carrying a weapon effectively, would be killed in such a sort of quick and brutal manner? Was this quite shocking to the British public? It was shocking to the world public. And you find references and even monuments to Edith Cavell right across the um, Commonwealth. Um, It was completely shocking. It was said to sum up the Hun barbarity that people were fighting against. So she becomes a a martyr and a leading propaganda figure. At what stage then did her statue come to be created? Did we have to wait until the end of the war for Edith Cavell's memorial to be created? It's actually immediately the news of her death reaches reaches England that a campaign starts led by the Daily Telegraph newspaper that she's got to be commemorated. And so this becomes another of the really quite early public monumental responses to be unveiled, which takes place in 1920 when Queen Alexandra does the unveiling of Sir George Frampton's really handsome monument. So if we're standing just outside St Martin's in the Fields Church, uh, we're looking perhaps across the road towards the National Portrait Gallery. How do we see Edith appear to us? Frampton's monument is very admired. It's a very effective and powerful monument that combines elements of tradition and modernity. Her statue is a tall, rather stylized, elegant figure of a woman in marble, looking out straight into the mid-distance. You can imagine her facing off the firing squad. There she is, beneath the single word humanity, which appears above. She stands against a very tall structure, which is made of grey granite. And this has a tall shaft with a cross to the principal part in relief. And above that, you have the words king and country, and right at the top, seated effectively on another cross at the top, is a figure of really, it's a maternal figure with a big sort of nurse's cross on her skirt. And this woman is cradling a baby. And this is said to represent the protection that Britain afforded the smaller nations which had led it in, into war. So it's a, it's a figure of humanity, but it's also a political figure showing Britain's commitment to world peace, in a sense. And on the back, you've got a wonderful relief of a proud lion standing poised on a rock with the word fortitude. So Britain is, is in the vanguard of watching out for infractions of the world order. And that's what took it into war. And that inscription is in capitals, uh, similar to the previous memorials we've just discussed. But uh, I think the thing that most people will notice is that Edith and her name, it's etched in gold lettering, is it not? It is absolutely right. There's a sort of almost a sanctity to stressing her her martyrdom, if you like. And you're right, the, the nature of the inscription is picked out. But as I'm sure you're going to ask me shortly... There's another inscription on this that's really interesting. Yes, so tell us about that one. So this monument was unveiled in 1920, and some people felt it wasn't quite right. There was something missing. Maybe it was a bit martial. It was a bit sort of almost boastful of Britain's prowess at upholding justice. And an organisation called the National Council of Women 
lobbied to have an amendment made to the inscription. They didn't want anything taken off, but they wanted something added. And that was a famous statement that she had made in her farewell letter before she was taken out to be shot. So on the front of the pedestal beneath her statue, you've got the words Edith Cavell, Brussels, Dawn, October the 12th, 1915. Then you have an added inscription. And the words are these, patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone. And I think that is such a thought-provoking inscription to read on a war memorial. What is that supposed to mean, do you think? I think it's a challenge to the concepts of a monument which glorifies triumph and martial achievement. I think it's saying that we need to think about the consequences of peace. We need to think about reconciliation. And we need to think about the true nature of moral courage, which in Edith Cavell's case was facing up to a German firing squad because she was sticking to her principles of helping people. It's almost like she's almost forgiven the enemy as well before she takes her last breath kind of thing with this inscription. Absolutely right. I think it's a very Christian commentary on reconciliation and sacrifice. I think it's just really thought-provoking. What's your view, Jeremy? Have you seen this one a few times? I've seen this one many times. And just as Roger has said, I mean, it's it, it's an architectural and artistic masterpiece. It's very striking. And I think, you know, quite often when you look at it, you'd actually think that it's actually more modern than it is. It has It has an angular, very, very sort of bold quality to it. But of course, the actual heart of it is that inscription about patriotism is not enough. You know, fortunately, that's that's a side that's facing towards the north. So actually quite a lot of people see it as they pass by. And I'm sure as as I was, you know, you feel inspired to actually find out more about the story that, that underlies this. And of course, it's a very, very affecting story. Well, let's move on to our next memorial, which is in London, of course, as part of the Great War commemorations. Jeremy, can you take us on a trip to where we're going next? I can, but we've actually, this is the long journey, that we, the longest journey that we'll be doing in our trip, because we've got to get to the other end of Piccadilly. We've got to get to Hyde Park Corner. So I wouldn't think badly of anyone who would say, oh, let's get a bus or let's get a tube. And actually, you can get a tube fairly directly from Leicester Square or from Piccadilly Circus, which is actually just around, just through Leicester Square and a little bit further towards the west get on the Piccadilly line or you can walk all the way down the broad street of Piccadilly itself everything opens out and you are at the space that we now know as Hyde Park Corner so Apsley House the home of the Duke of Wellington is just on the north side of that and surrounded by a a road there's there's a broad open space with a large number of war memorials and the last two that we're going to be talking about today are in the same place. And we're going to start off, I think, by talking about one on the north side of the Hyde Park Corner space called the Machine Gun Corps Memorial. And Roger, can you pick up the story and describe how this memorial appears to the visitor? This is an unusual memorial and a classic example of needing to understand the background before you can appreciate it fully. What you see in the centre, standing on a a square plinth, is a very handsome bronze naked figure of a young man who's holding a massive sword. He's completely naked. So the emphasis is on male beauty and vulnerability. And because of the huge sword, we are put in mind of David from the Bible, picking up Goliath's sword, perhaps. The strange thing is that this statue is then flanked by two Vickers machine guns cast immaculately in bronze with their accompanying kit beside them and resting against each of their barrels is a large laurel wreath also in bronze. So the architecture of this, which is in marble, is extremely classical. The statue is very refined and of Renaissance inspiration. But you've got these two bits of the hardware of mass killing, two Vickers machine guns on either side. So it's a a really interesting memorial to a distinct branch of the army, which was the machine gun corps. Yes, an interesting contrast that, isn't it? This young man is David of David and Goliath. 
that's what we understand. Yeah. And I think he is too, Roger, because, you know, there's, it's, in a, it's in a very clear classical tradition and there are bronze statues by, you know, Renaissance masters like Donatello that are definitely, you know, of David and the fact that his sword is so outstanding. And there's also an inscription, I believe, on the plinth that actually has a, has a verse from the Bible that talks about David and Saul. Um, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that, that that's who it is. Absolutely right. And the, the inscription is one of those ones that really brings you up short when you read it. It says, Saul hath slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So you're celebrating the achievement of mass killing. In the context of the First World War, of course, the machine gun was one of those new elements of modern industrialized warfare that was responsible for the appalling death tally. Most people were killed by artillery on the Western Front, as we'll no doubt talk about soon. But machine guns are also renowned for the ghastly harvest of advancing troops. We think about the first day of the Psalm and people being mown down by rows. So the machine gun was very much a modern weapon of its time. And this memorial was put up not only to mark the people killed who were fighting in the machine gun corps, it was also put up to mark the end of that unit because the machine gun corps was wound up in 1922 and machine guns distributed throughout the infantry. So it's a monument not just to the fallen, but to a whole unit. Right. So what date was that memorial created then? So that was unveiled in 1925 and it was one of the last works of the um, famous new sculptor, Francis Derwent Wood who was a, a very interesting figure, a Royal Academician, and he had quite an interesting First World War. He had a personal connection to the Great War, didn't he? He did. This is a really great example of imaginative, clever art historical research helping us understand the art of the past better. A scholar called Sarah Krellin looked into what had Derwent Wood done during the war. He'd actually worked at a hospital, He'd worked at a hospital in London, and his particular responsibility very much suited his sculptural talent. He was actually helping make facial masks that the disfigured wounded who were coming back from the fighting could then put on and then go out into society. So he was helping disguise the appalling facial disfigurements that some of these men suffered by really turning them out. And his uh, studio at the hospital in London was officially called the Masks for Facial Disfigurement Department. But it, it carried the, the rather grotesque nickname of the Tin Noses Shop. I see. I was just about to ask you what sort of materials these masks were made out of, but um, that sort of sums it up. Were there other materials that were used? Well, they would make these sort of bits of faces out of uh, painted tin. And they would then put these on, often held in place with spectacles. And you would then have an application of makeup applied to help bridge the divide between living flesh and your prosthetic tin nose. So it was a pretty clever bit of theatrical disguise. How was this memorial received when it was first unveiled then? Because obviously it's quite a a lot going on in this particular memorial. It's got the classical and the modern, the sort of nudity of David and the sort of brash harshness of the industrial machine guns, which are either side of him. So there's a lot going on, isn't there? Yes, there is. I mean, originally this monument stood rather forlornly in a traffic island just to the south of the Royal Artillery Memorial, which is, is just across the other side of Hyde Park Corner. So in fact, like many of these memorials, apart from the acts of commemoration in November, they were quite often rather overlooked. And this has been sort of written off as just a, a perplexing and rather inappropriate kind of memorial. It's only recently with Sarah Crellin's scholarship that we see it for the really poignant tribute to the appalling impacts on the human body of modern mass killing. I, I have to say that, I mean, you know, since I first heard this story, it completely changed my opinion about this statue, where I think I had taken the line that, as Roger has said, 
and particularly when you compare it with the last one that we're going to be discussing, the Royal Artillery War Memorial, which takes a completely different approach. This had just seemed crass in the extreme that this figure of, you know, a sort of beautiful youth actually completely failing to deal with the reality of the damage that machine guns could do. And the inscription talks about, you know, the glorious heroes, the machine gun corps. And while, you know, one doesn't want to be disparaging about any of the the servicemen who fought and gave their lives, nevertheless, it doesn't feel as if it, it actually captures anything like the truth of the First World War. And yet, suddenly realizing that actually there's a great significance in choosing this figure of aesthetic beauty that would absolutely knew whereof he spoke and he knew the full horror of the, of, the, of the disfigurement that war would cause and yet wanted to represent it in this very idealized you know male figure it's it's very very complex but actually you have once you know that story you can't look at it again without being deeply moved i feel Yes, I think that's a really important point. And I suppose as well, those men who were left disfigured but survived the war, they are very exposed in the same way that David is on that plinth. So I suppose there's that to consider as well, that sort of nudity, that nakedness is is a a kind of vulnerability as well. That's an interesting thought. I have to admit that I'd never considered that, but that certainly is worth, worth thinking about. Okay, so another one for the guidebooks there. You can quote me on that one. (laughs) Jeremy, let's move on to our final uh, memorial of the Great War, which is the Royal Artillery Memorial, as you just intimated. It's in the same area. It is. We only need to go a few steps away from this. So, in fact, you know, as we walk back down the steps uh, of the Machine Gunners Memorial and we've got the the Wellington Arch is right in front of us. And there's some modern memorials around nearby. There's a very striking memorial to New Zealand servicemen over on our left. And in, our, in the distance on our right is the wonderful memorial to Australian servicemen in the shape of a boomerang, but with a fountain playing over inscriptions of all of the places where servicemen had, had lost their lives. But what we are doing is we are ignoring those and we are actually just heading right over towards the right. So that's towards the western side of the traffic island. And there is the last. And I have to give an opinion here. I think the finest of the war memorials, the Royal Artillery War Memorial. Roger, can you describe how it appears? Because this is a very, very large structure, isn't it? Towards the bottom end of the uh, traffic island. Yeah, this monument is an absolute whopper. It's a life-size stone 9.2-inch howitzer. And the, the actual gun that Jagger and uh, the architect Lionel Pearson based it on it still exists in the Imperial War Museum, with the ironic name of Mother. And so this colossal howitzer, which is like a heavy, heavy cannon for pumping out huge shells in sort of siege warfare, points towards France and the Western Front. And then it stands on this really large raised base that in plan looks like a cross. But I suspect the elements that people really remember about this memorial are, are twofold. One, on each side is a bronze statue. Three of them are standing, representing gunners. And on the fourth side is a corpse. And then between these bronze statues are the most wonderful reliefs showing different forms of artillery warfare. And they are incredibly vivid depictions of actual fighting in the First World War. But they draw on ancient traditions. So they draw on the sculpture of Assyria, of Egypt and of classical sculpture. And it really is the most tremendous achievement all in all. Yes, I think the thing that you really are struck by when you see it is how large it is. Um, you've got the stone plinths and the steps below. And then you, as you've been describing, you've got this giant piece of artillery on the top. And then you've also got um, around this area, you've got uh, a number of soldiers standing almost I don't know whether they're sleeping or they're just bowing their heads in a sort of vigil kind of state. That's quite a striking image as well, isn't it? Very much so. I wouldn't say they were sleeping. I would say they were resolutely resting. You've got one who's a driver, so who's used to driving, uh, riding horses, carrying artillery wagons. 
at the south end, you've got an artillery officer, a sort of very, very strong figure holding a folded over overcoat. That always brings to mind my grandfather, who was an <laughs> artillery officer in the First World War. And on the other side, then you've got someone who's a carrier of shells, uh, who's wearing this extraordinary apparatus uh, slung over his shoulders into which four large artillery shells would be carried. He's like a human beast of burden carrying these um, deadly bits of armament. So it really is a tribute to the effort and endeavour of the artillery, which is wholly appropriate given A, it was the largest single unit in, in the British army, and B, artillery was the principal dealer of death in fighting in the First World War with at least 70% of, of casualties caused in that way. And that's on both sides. Yeah. Who commissions this enormous piece then? Well, it's commissioned by the Royal Regiment of Artillery. And if you're lucky enough to attend one of their commemoration services on Remembrance Sunday, as I once was, it becomes the centrepiece for, for the artillery's act of tribute to it, its fallen comrades from, from both world wars, but originally set up after the First World War and unveiled in October 1925. You described earlier that there's a fallen soldier lying on his back as part of this structure. What can you tell us about that? It's a real shocker. This is along the north end of the monument, so the end that's facing onto Hyde Park. And you have the three standing figures on the west, south and east sides. On the north side is a recumbent corpse, like a classic tomb effigy. And this is sculpted in a very powerful way. You have the man's overcoat pulled over his face. You can peer underneath the collar of the overcoat and see part of his head, but his face is being concealed, as happens with the dead. And then you have a, an artillery tin hat, a helmet, beside it. And here is a regiment of death. And the, the inscription that runs around the base beneath which the corpse is included is a quotation from Shakespeare's Henry V. Here was a royal fellowship of death. And when you look at the end of it, you just see that word death and then the corpse on top. It's terribly powerful and a, a frank depiction of the casualties that were incurred. Is that the only war memorial in London, regardless of whether it's been looked after by English heritage or not, that actually features someone in a death kind of position? It's not quite the only one. And if you go to East London, if you go to Limehouse, where one of the tremendous churches by Nicholas Hawksmoor is, St Anne's Limehouse, there is a monument which consists of a large bronze statue of Jesus, but on the base of the pedestal is a scene of devastation in a blasted trench with several corpses of lying on the ground and a, a wounded man just trying to recover. But they're very unusual. People normally wanted to concentrate on tributes and salutes to heroism. To depict the dead on the war memorial was quite strong meat. Can I just jump in? Because the, the bronze is absolutely stunning. And it's the, you know, once you've seen it, you'll never forget it. But some uh, listeners may, people who know London, may be interested in a couple of other bronzes and similar themes by Charles Sergeant Jagger. Anyone who has to travel through Paddington Station may see the war memorial on the platform one at Paddington. And that's got a similar First World War serviceman who's reading a book. Um, he's quite famous when you see him. And actually, visitors to Elton Palace, you're not that far away that Stephen Courtauld, who himself had, uh, of course, served in the First World War, he had a miniature bronze statue by Jagger of a serviceman in his study. And that's, that's still there now that we can see that. So that was the Royal Artillery Memorial. Architect was Lionel Pearson. And as you've been describing, Jeremy, the sculpture part was Charles Sargent Jagger. So we've talked about six war memorials cared for by English Heritage in this episode, but how many statues and, mon and monuments does English Heritage have in its care across London? Statues and memorials together, we have, I make it 47 
these of course are you know they they commemorate all sorts of sort of people these are actually not the only ones that actually have military themes to them that of course we have statues to military leaders from other wars so from the 19th century for example figures like the duke of wellington or lord napier and in the 20th century the Second World War, we have Earl Montgomery, Alan Brooke, and Sir Arthur Harris, and Florence Nightingale too, who obviously, you know, has as a nurse has you know some similarities to to Nurse Cavell that we've been talking about, and other statues are you know other figures, perhaps some of them more important or better known in other countries than in ours. So it's a whole variety, but these six are particularly worth singling out as being you know a very coherent group all of them made in response to this one particular event, the Great War, and all of them actually made in a relatively short period of time in the years immediately after the conflict. Obviously, time eats away at some of these structures. Can you speak to some of the work that goes on every year by English Heritage to make sure that they try and look as new as they did when they were first created? Well, as I said a little bit earlier, one of the key tasks that we would have to do in any event is to try to keep them clean and that's not an easy thing to do when there's traffic actually sometimes passing just within a few feet of them so that's a fairly constant operation and certainly in the weeks leading up to remembrance day things like the cenotaph you know and the royal artillery memorial we will be trying very hard to keep them clean it's a bit of a challenge though like for example as I said, when rain gets onto Portland stone, if it doesn't dry off quite quickly, it can bring both the grime of, of traffic pollution and also sometimes some of the sort of vegetal matter from trees you know, will, will lie on there and almost give you a sort of green coating. So that's quite difficult to clean off. And actually in recent years for the Cenotaph and for the Royal Artillery War Memorial, we've actually experimented with some quite innovative methods of conservation, including using what we call a hydrophobic coating, which actually stops the rainwater bringing pollution into the pores of the stone and keeps the moisture out of them. And as I also said, I mean, a particularly concern to us is things of the long-term conservation of low-relief sculpture, such as we see on, say, the Belgium War Memorial, or most especially the fantastic low-relief sculptures on the Royal Artillery War Memorial, which are so essential to the significance of that memorial. Sometimes we will have to apply things like shelter coats to actually try to slow down the effect of erosion on them. Can I just um, yeah, reinforce what Jeremy says? The importance and quality of the reliefs on the Royal Artillery Memorial are impossible to overstate. And yet every single year they're suffering. So I would really hope that English Heritage can go on talking with Westminster City Council and try and get those um, trees cut back a bit because the shedding of organic matter onto that monument is to the monument's terminal harm. It's a difficult one, isn't it, as well? I suppose everything kind of erodes and uh, erases over time. One thing that doesn't, of course, as long as we make sure that we talk about it is remembering, is memory. So I suppose, what do these war memorials represent in today's zeitgeist versus when they were created? I suppose they have a different story for generations today, don't they? Well, if I could jump in first, but I'm sure Roger has thoughts about this too. I mean, I I have to put my hand up saying I, I am old enough to remember surviving veterans of the First World War, the men of the old tin hat or moths, as they used to be abbreviated to, still used to come to Remembrance Day parades and church services when I was a boy. So it's not actually that distant. And you know, I, I have no problem with saying that things like, you know, Black Adder on the television and other things actually do keep the First World War in remembrance, perhaps more than many other conflicts do. But as I said, in connection with the Cenotaph, that the meanings of these things become much, much broader, even when the actual institutions that commissioned these statues don't exist anymore. I think there is enough memory of and enough realisation that actually conflict has never been eradicated from the face of the earth. Britain is actually still closely involved in many of these conflicts. And I feel, English Heritage feels, and I think many other people do feel, that actually these memorials provide an invaluable focus for reflection on all of those subjects, and that actually they have some of the most powerful 
messages for the modern world of, of, of any of the sites that we look after. I agree with all of that. And their message is ultimately one of asking people to remember the ghastly price of, of modern conflict. You haven't got to sign up to the agendas of triumphalism, patriotism, to find them worthwhile to study. They make you think. And that's what a monument means. It's an appeal to the mind. And I, I think it's the power of those monuments is, is borne out every Remembrance Sunday when you see them as centres of remembrance services and people go to pay their own tributes. They're also amazing works of art. So it's such a relief for the citizen that they're in the best care that they could have. And I would just urge everyone to go and explore them for themselves and just think of the stories that they embody. Well, as we approach Remembrance Sunday and Armistice Day, perhaps that's something that listeners might want to do as they walk across London, perhaps listening to this episode, and they can um, reflect on all those things that we've just discussed. So thank you both for taking the time to talk us through these six war memorials, edifices that remember the Great War, and for helping in a small part as well, uh, at least through audio, keeping the memory of that conflict and all its lessons alive and in our thoughts. So thank you both. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be looking at the story of one of America's original stars of the big screen, Charlie Chaplin, and how he came to be commemorated by a blue plaque in London. He's had a huge impact on whole generations of comedians since. It sort of cut a path to um, Hollywood for many others. So he was influential in that sense too. Thanks for listening. See you next time.